All right, so the Advent and Christmas seasons are like, that's like my favorite time of the year from decorations and festivities to special traditions and holy observances. It just feels like this time, at least for me and my experiences, is set apart in some special way. Um, I even like having kids home from school in winter break because it's not as long as summer break, and so uh, it's kind of fun to have them around. I like it when it snows from time to time, and it sort of sort of slows down the city on purpose, like there's less things open, and sometimes you have to stay home. I just like it, and I absolutely love as a, well, just as a, a Bible reader and as a Bible preacher, I love how the Bible communicates uh, God's rescue plan to us. I never grow tired about preaching God's, uh, God's angels coming to, uh, to bring good news of a Savior, or of Mary and Joseph's faith and courage, or of Mary's prophetic song in the Magnificat. But if you've been following along this year in our Advent series, you'll notice that I haven't been preaching on any of those traditional passages. There's been no sermon on Joseph or Elizabeth There's been no uh, expounding on the songs of angels or the silence of Zechariah. And as much as I love those stories, and Lord willing, I'll have many more years to preach them again and again, I also want to give voice to the reality of where we actually live today in the 21st century. The stories of angels and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are amazing, and they point to the incarnation of God That's the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus. And those stories continue to be good news to us on so many different levels. But on one very significant level, we have to acknowledge that those events already happened. Advent Advent points to uh, an event that already took place roughly 2,000 years ago. God did put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was miraculously born in Bethlehem to an unwed mother named Mary and adopted by her fiancé and later husband, Joseph. Unlike the people in the gospel stories who experienced those things firsthand, we live after the fact. We live in an age in which Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. We live in an age where we're uh, awaiting not his Not his birth the first time, but we are awaiting his return, his second appearance. So we live in an age in which we're waiting for a second advent. And with that, the kingdom of God. Now, thankfully, we're not left to stumble life through, uh, uh, to stumble through life without any kind of guidance on how to live in between the first advent and the second advent. See, these apostles and the first generation followers of Jesus They watch Jesus ascend into heaven, and they're like, now what? He came, and he says he's coming back. How do we live now? And those apostles, many of them, wrote letters to the early church, and we have those in our New Testament. We've been covering those over Advent, so you may recall, just as a little recap, the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at the reality of suffering and how it can make us feel sometimes abandoned by God. In particular, suffering can cause us to think negatively about God and about his creation, about our bodies and about our world. And in his letter to Timothy, Paul writes to encourage Timothy and the church in Ephesus that Timothy was leading. He calls them to practice giving thanks to God for all the good things he provides, for all of his abundance and for all of his grace. 
And we saw how contrary to the way we often think, God actually wants you and I to enjoy his good creation, to enjoy beauty and good food and great relationships and lives in our bodies. Practicing thanksgiving helps us to realize that God is for us, that he is a good and gracious father. And it helps us to frame our suffering in terms of longing for the second advent when there will be no more tears and no more death and no more evil. Last week, we were encouraged by the Apostle Peter, uh, who wrote in his second letter. And in that letter, he's writing to people who, have a, who are having a hard time waiting. Anyone else have a hard time waiting? Yeah, I know that that's true. Um, Jesus had been resurrected for about 30 years at the time that Peter is writing, uh, and it seemed like nothing was happening. Like, was this a hoax? Is God even paying attention to what's going on in the world? Because it seems pretty messed up. Uh, Some people had given up hope, and they decided that Jesus wasn't coming back, and that meant, hey, we can just do whatever we want, because this whole thing is, is rigged. But Peter said that such ideas are foolish. He says that God isn't ignorant, and he's not uncaring. God isn't bringing judgment and the new kingdom just yet because he's patient. He wants to give more people more time to come to know him. So don't lose heart. The patience of God gives us freedom to be patient with others, patient with ourselves as we walk through this world. In the first two sermons then, we're kind of dealing with things outside of ourselves, how we interact with the physical world. We're to give thanks to God and enjoy it to his glory and to our neighbor's good. How are we to interpret the tension we encounter with God's, you know, apparent absence? We're to realize that being patient and and to recognize that God's patience is a gift to us and allows us to be patient with others. But living between these two advents isn't just affecting things outside of ourselves. It affects us on the inside as well. We don't just struggle like with how the world is, but we struggle with who we are on the inside. Like who doesn't honestly wrestle with shame? Who here hasn't felt disoriented or out of place in your community? Who here from time to time hasn't questioned their value or worth how you fit in with a group of friends or in a family or on a team. And if we're honest, every single one of us has experienced doubt and shame. Human beings have elaborate ways of covering up our shame and insecurities. We wear masks and pretend that we're something we're not. We devote our lives to our achievements or to the friends that we hang out with or to the things that we do. And all this is a way for us to make an identity for ourselves so we can feel like we fit somewhere in this strange space we occupy between the first advent and the second. Sometime in the mid to late first century, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church and to this this church that he had planted in Corinth, a city in Greece. The church was also struggling with their sense of worth, with their sense of place in their world. 
And Paul's letter to them provides us with some helpful encouragement as well. So if you're able to stand, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 2, 5. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Lord, that's where we want to rest as well. Not in the crafty words of people, even in the best ideas we hear, but in your power and in your personhood, you are the Savior. Would you open your word to us, Lord, and speak to us tonight? Amen. At face value, that passage doesn't make it seem like the Corinthians were struggling with self-worth at all. It appears they're overconfident and arrogant. But if you just scratch the surface of the arrogant, you will find deep shame and insecurity almost every single time. Now to understand this passage, we're gonna have to understand a little bit more about Corinth and the setting that Paul's writing in. Corinth was a Roman colony, a wealthy seaport, and a truly multi-ethnic and multicultural city. It was similar to the boom towns of the Wild West. It just attracted people. There was trade going in and out, lots of money changing hands, all kinds of new ideas as ships would come from all around, all around the world on the Mediterranean, and they would meet up in Corinth. Lots of money, individualism, and very few guiding ethics, community, or accountability. The social capital was money and sex and power, information, and political connection, kind of like today. Even in this setting, the power of the gospel went forth, and people began to change. The church was planted, and Paul spent 18 months discipling people, teaching and nurturing this new congregation in the ways of Jesus. In a culture with strict lines between social classes, rich and poor, connected and unconnected like strangers, women and men, 
quite separate. Jews and Gentiles on different planes, Romans and Greeks, firm lines between people. The church and the power of the Spirit was the place, the only place where the ground was level. Well, the only place between birth and death. The place where in Christ, people were no longer stratified by these different levels and different designations, but they're just siblings in Christ. No superiors, no servants, no masters. And it wasn't just like a religion that people had, it was a transformative movement that had all of these implications for the economy and culture and ethics, sociology and family structure. The gospel changes everything, and the gospel was changing everything in first century Corinth. In fact, if if you've got your Bible open and you're looking at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes about how the gospel he preached wasn't a gospel of slick rhetoric, but was demonstrated with power. That is what he's talking about. The gospel has the power to change not only individuals, but entire communities. Only God can change a culture like Corinth and bring people all stratified, especially the upper class who had everything to lose by hanging out with lower class people and level the field in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. But we know that after Paul left Corinth to go plant other churches and do little circuits of teaching other places, that some of the people began to slip back into their old ways. They begin to find their identity and the things that the world was telling them were truly important. And they sort of began to become ashamed of their God who died on a cross because that sounds like foolishness. And they longed for leaders who were strong and well-spoken and more presentable than Paul apparently was. After all, Corinth was a place where great teachers from around the world came to spout off all about the latest philosophies and ideas, the newest religious observances that they were discovering all around the world. And people were attracted to smooth speaking and social status and power. If you could become part of an inner circle of a powerful person or a great philosophical movement where there's secret handshakes and special clubs, it makes you feel like you're more important, like you have more value, like you've arrived in life. But these Corinthian Christians were following a God who had become human, a very unpopular idea in a culture that largely viewed the physical world as a mistake And salvation, in the Greek mind, was largely an escape from the physical world. So here are these Corinthian Christians worshiping a God that actually became flesh. That sounds crazy. And they worshiped Jesus, who's a Jewish man, born in suspicious circumstances. In a world that valued power and connection and family name, being born in Bethlehem was less than impressive. And in a culture that valued all of this high class, the fact that Jesus was born to an unwed Jewish girl was completely scandalous. And then this Jesus that they worship was crucified by the Roman Empire, like so many other criminals were crucified. It's the most humiliating of deaths. And these Corinthians claimed to worship this crucified Jewish man who was raised from the dead, and get this, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised into another body, Again, this is like the Greek mind is, no, no, no. What is it with your God and being physical? That's crazy. 
These Corinthians had been transformed by the gospel. They had their lives turned upside down and experienced new life and forgiveness and belonging. But over the years, the pressures and cultural expectations and cultural values begin to cause these people to question, is the gospel of Jesus enough? I mean, compared to what everyone else is saying is important in life, the church community seems kind of simple, kind of down to earth, kind of unspectacular, kind of humble. Think about that for a moment. If you participate in the life of, of the church on a regular basis, I know that you are exposed to the love of Jesus, both through the preaching of God's word on a regular basis, and through the actions of this community. And I know that there is a place to belong here, a place that you can be you here, and a place here to find out who you really are in Christ, like to grow into your Christ-likeness. Like I know that there is that opportunity. But what, when you consider what our culture says makes you important, Things like popularity or success or social status or connections, wealth, power, independence, the freedom to do what you want when you want. Doesn't it seem that maybe you're missing out? That maybe this following Jesus thing is a little too humbling, too unspectacular, and frankly, a little bit messy. We want to make a name for ourselves. And so Paul helps us in this passage giving us two things to consider. The first, consider your calling. That's how he starts. Consider your calling. The Greek word for consider is literally look. Look. It's almost as if he's saying look in the metaphorical mirror. Look in the mirror. What you'll see is that a person who God has called out. That's what you'll see a person who God has called. He chose you to be his people. He pursued you. And who were you when he called you out? Look in the mirror. What does the Corinthian world value? Worldly wisdom, and power, and wealth, and status. Connections from being born into the right family. And Paul says to these Corinthians, hey, listen, look, Hardly any of you had any of that stuff going for you when Jesus called you. You had little worldly reason to boast about where you came from when you're hanging out with your friends at the pub or in the marketplace or in the political arena. And now you're looking for more? You're looking to boast about yourself? Don't you know that God chose the weak things, the little people, those who are despised in the eyes of the world? He came to choose them to shame and convict the strong that they too, the strong, might come to repentance. So what, what, what is Paul doing here? Well, in the ancient world, class structure was almost set in stone. We've talked about that a little bit. It, it's almost like the caste system in India. You're born into a class, and it was nearly impossible in the Greco-Roman world to escape your class. You could buy citizenship, but you still might be a lower-tier Roman citizen. It was almost like your destiny. Like, that's just where your station in life was. But now here comes this guy who's preaching the good news of a God who identifies even with the lowest of the low. 
a God who gave himself that all might be forgiven. Any class. A God who promised uh, his own life, his own spirit to dwell in you, no matter what family you were born into, or how much money you had, or what gender you are. Didn't matter. And a God who gave us more than new life, he gave us a new family, a place to belong, the church. And, and this is a place where we break bread together, no matter who we are. So like a senator and a barista sit down and share communion together, share fellowship together. The CEO sits with the secretary, uh, where class distinctions melt away, and people are, are merely sisters and brothers, merely siblings together not known by their outside designations necessarily. And Paul's point is twofold. For all those Corinthians who were the lower class and now calling for their rights and boasting in their newfound status, he says, remember who you were when God called you. He didn't call you because you were great. He called you because he loves you. Now, we also know that this church in Corinth that Paul is writing to included some very wealthy people. Crispus was a dude who had positional authority. He was a, a leader in the synagogue before he started following Jesus and became a leader in the church. There's this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who had their own estate, and they hosted a house church at their home. Erastus and Stephanus had all kinds of wealth and power, and some people in Corinth, we know uh, in the church in Corinth, even had multiple homes that they used to serve the church, and they used to house traveling apostles and teachers when they came through, right? And in this letter, they would be reminded that if God chose the weaker people before they were someone great in God's eyes, then he also chose the wealthy people despite the wealth that they had. See, God has a history of working through those overlooked by the powerful. And he also has a history of working through the powerful who don't overlook the overlooked. Humility is the common denominator, the type of person that God works in and through. To the world's powerful, this is a statement that being chosen has nothing to do with what made them important in the world. And to the world's powerless, this is a message that being chosen had nothing to do with ma what made them unimportant to the world. Paul encourages the Corinthians, and he encourages us, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and see the masks that we are wearing. Is your identity in your outward appearance? Just, that's a low-hanging fruit one. Like, but vanity is a thing, right? Is your appearance in your outward, uh, your, your identity in your outward appearance, right? What happens when age, injury, sickness, gravity, <laughs> what happens when those things do their inevitable? If your value is in something that's literally fleeting away, then who will you be when you're not who you are right now anymore? Is your identity in your talent as a musician or an athlete or an artist or a gamer? If you choose to be identified by your talent, then what happens to your identity? 
when injury or circumstances sideline you, when your mind isn't as sharp as it once was? What happens when someone younger or harder working or more privileged or more talented steals your spotlight? What happens when you realize the emptiness of of years of playing for somebody else or doing things for somebody else and realizing you don't know who you are? Is your identity in your vocation what happens to you when retirement comes or you've been reassigned or when you can't do what you once did the way you once did it? Who will you be? And for many of us, is your identity in being put together competent, the one who's always the helper and the advice giver. What happens when the poison of of deep wounds comes to the surface, and it always does? What happens when you're the parent or leader or pastor, and you hit an emotional wall that challenges who you are and where you thought you came from, and why you thought you were valuable. I'll tell you, you go to therapy. (laughs) You go to therapy, and and you become a little bit freer. Paul invites us to look into the mirror, and I think he does it first of all, to humble us. Looking in the mirror and taking an honest inventory of our masks and our motives can be painful, but it is an act of mercy, and it's a step toward healing. What I love about Paul is that he's not just like a prophet pointing out truth, like just truth-telling, and then he's like leaving us deconstructed and vulnerable like like a bad liberal arts professor or something. Um, Paul is a pastor, and he knows that the truth will at first strip away our masks and our false securities, and he knows that that's gonna hurt, but he also knows that when Uh, when there's nothing else obstructing our view, no masks in the way, no false selves, that is when we can see who we really are. And if we keep looking in the mirror long enough, we'll come to see that we are actually image bearers of the living God. In verse 30, we read that Paul, uh, what Paul knows is true. He says, the true you, when you look in the metaphorical mirror, that you are in Christ Jesus, who came to us, he became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those are a lot of theological words. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Four biblical terms that sum up what it means to be made new through the work of Jesus and his grace in making you new. Paul then quotes Jeremiah 9. While you're looking at your true self, don't boast in looks or masks or externals. If you're going to boast, boast that you've been rescued by God, made new in Christ, God's image bearer, part of the family of God. That's who you actually are. Glorious. Infinitely valuable. Unique beyond compare. And so is every single person sitting around you right now. Glorious, unique, infinite. True humility is seeing yourself truthfully and then acting accordingly. 
seeing yourself truthfully and acting accordingly. You are glorious, and you're, you're also at the same time a recipient of glory that you don't deserve. You're royalty, and you're royalty because you are adopted. You're dignified precisely because you're made in the image of the character of God who is dignified. Look, the false identities you're building your lives upon will not sustain you. They'll come crashing down. This is what Paul's saying. Look, when you let go of your false self, you can see clearly enough to know that you're glorious, to know that you're made in God's image. And friends, the other thing that Paul wants us to see when he says look in this passage is that you are made in God's image, but consider how God has revealed that image to us. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it means lots of things, but not least this. Of all the ways that God could choose to reveal himself, of all the ways he could display his power, his authority, his glory, he chooses the way of humility. He becomes a baby. God reveals himself as a baby, which in itself should give us pause and humble us. I mean, think about it. The world is falling apart. Our own hearts are conflicted with deceit and sinful desires. Like, sometimes I don't even know if my motives are pure half the time. We need a radical Savior. And God decides to come in the form of a baby. No matter how low your situation in life, no matter how deep your shame, there is nothing more disarming and more approachable than a baby. Unless it's crying uncontrollably, then that's, that's horrible. But I, it's got a sense that we'll stick with the metaphor thing, not the real baby thing. The point is, God's glory is defined not in terms of his power, but in terms of his sacrificial love. This Advent, know that you are made in God's image, that you have infinite value. And in the words from Paul to the Philippians, here's how you and I are to walk moving forward in life together. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Would you pray? Lord, thank you for being the humble God, for making yourself vulnerable and approachable. So that even the most shame-filled of us who struggle to see our value and our worth when we're being honest, even us can come to you, Lord. Lord, help us to have the courage to see ourselves as we really are. To take off the masks and false personas that we put on. To receive your grace of, um, of unmasking us. And help us to see with new eyes what you already know to be true, that we are your children made in your image.
that you love us, that you welcome us into your family. Lord, I pray for my my sisters, my brothers, my siblings here, Lord, that we would feel so a part of your family, that we would have grace overflowing for other people, that we wouldn't see life as a huge competition, that we wouldn't fear for lack of abundance, that we wouldn't have to struggle for attention. Lord, that there would be a deep, settled security in each of us, knowing that we are children of God, chosen by God, loved by God, and blessed with the vocation of loving others in your name, Lord God.